It's a lot of fun. Keep it fun. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the UK Packers podcast. As usual, I'm your host at NFL on Twitter. And of course, follow the group at UK Packers. And we've had some real media heavyweights on. And I called Rob Domofsky. I think I referred to him as like the Jesus of Packer reporters. I don't know whether he got offended by that and wanted to slam the phone down. And I don't know how to better that because our next guest is just an absolute superstar in the sphere as well. Big... Star Wars fan, I believe. It's Aaron Nagler, the Luke Skywalker of Packers Reporters. Aaron, what's going on, buddy? <laughs> much. Thanks so much for that intro. Um, I'll go with the Han Solo of Packer Reporters. Not quite. I would say not quite the uh, you know the chosen one uh, to bring <laughs> you know balance to the force and bring his father back from the abyss. But I'm definitely here to crack wise and shoot some blasters and. You know, have a good time. <laughs> as long as I don't have that aim that those white dudes have. Stormtroopers, is it? You see, this is where yes, I show my yes. ignorance with Star Wars. I tried to get into it. I missed the boat originally. Tried to get into it. Thought I was into it. And then someone said a comment about it being kind of a, a sort of a niche film. Like it was kind of an indie film. And I was like, this is a multi-billion dollar industry. What are you yeah, talking no, about? It's, there's nothing niche about it. There's for, that's for sure. I think maybe some factions of the fandom are a bit niche, but yeah, no, <laughs> the film the film itself is anything but niche. Yeah, no, I go, I go into my local convenience store, Tesco, over here, and I can see a Chewbacca cushion. So I'm kind of thinking, if I can have <laughs> Chewie sitting on the bed quite regularly, anytime I like, uh, it's definitely not a niche film. It's not indie anymore. But Aaron, <laughs> uh, so definitely not here to talk Star Wars because I'm, I'm far out of my depth. But we're Packers nuts like you. Now, you've you've hit the holy grail in the sense that you're supremely successful. You've worked for all the top publications. Um, and But you did start with kind of moonlighting and all the stuff of that. But what I like to do with the guests is I like to put them on a psychiatrist's couch a little bit. And bring them right back to where it all began. Because us Packer <laughs> fans are very unique that way. Correct me if I'm wrong. You're an Appleton native originally. And you are just... There's Packers in your blood through and through. There's stories out there of you going to watch your first game at your granddad at age three. Uh, is that all accurate? Are you just a complete Packers nut uh, born and bred? I was, yeah. Growing up, no doubt about it. I, I definitely, you know, when I... W- that is correct. That is my earliest memory in life, actually, is my father. Uh, my father arranging it with my grandpa to bring okay. me to Lambeau Field when I was three years old. I saw the Packers take on the Lions. I don't remember much. I do remember where we were, we were sitting high in the bowl. I don't remember much about the game. Um, they were my grandpa's seats at the time, and my grandpa famously offered them to my dad, and my dad passed. What? My dad. <laughs> yep, my dad. My dad. We got to remember how bad the Packers were. Yeah. People always have that that same reaction about. I can't believe he did that. I, to this day, I you know he still says on occasion he'll say, I'm really sorry, and I'm always say the same thing is I totally understand. I wasn't you know I can't begrudge him for not wanting to pay what thousands of dollars for the right to watch a I mean a team that had been just horrible for decades and at the time had no prospects for getting better. So. Mm. It is what it is. It's fine. But yeah, that's uh, that was my upbringing. Absolutely. I, you know, every Sunday morning, my dad would sit in his recliner and I would sit cross-legged in front of him. We watched the Packers at noon and then we would watch. Usually it was the San Diego Chargers taking on whoever else uh, for the three o'clock game. But yeah, definitely. That's that is certainly how I grew up. No doubt. 
That's bananas because we always get the narrative because how we get our information over here is from, from guys like you, from, you know, reading fervently because what we kind of find over here is that we have football snobbery as in soccer. So we don't particularly mm -hmm. know the stats of it. We'll watch the game. We'll come up with an opinion probably based on the past perspective and projecting and say, oh, he's a great player, not realizing that they've been crap for many years. Like famously the Irish football <laughs> team, we had a good team back in the early 90s and we just continued to think we have a good team even though... You know, we were kind of a Hasby team. That's going to really annoy all the Irish listeners. But it, it's, it's kind of true. So it's interesting to hear you say that as a as a Wisconsin native, that like, you know, the team were kind of crap. They weren't doing too well. What happened to the tickets, by the way? Did, did they just sort of get uh, dissolved back into the organization, get given out to somebody else? Yeah, absolutely. They, you know, that famous uh, waiting list that you hear mm. about all the time of, you know, however many, 60,000 long, whatever it is. Whoever was next on the, on that list got those tickets. That's uh, that's how it rolls. Well, it's a, it's a community service you did then. Uh, big shout out to the grandpas. <laughs> exactly. uh, my, my father was giving giving back to the community. Well, that's yeah. it. That's what's behind it all. But look, I mean, a fan from an early age, had you any inclination that you'd go on and do something, you know, Packer related or sport related when you got older? No, no, not when I was not when I was growing up. Um, no. When I was a kid, I very much wanted to be an actor. That's what I went to school for. Hmm. Um, you know, right out of high school, I went to DePaul University, uh, took a few years off, and then went to North Carolina School of the Arts, and uh, graduated from there, and went uh, moved to New York City, and I very much, I very much was an actor. Um, you know, met my wife, we had a child. I was on tour when we got pregnant with our second, hmm. and at that point, it was just really hard being away from New York City, being on the road as an actor, and having, you know, one young kid at home already. Um, and then having another one on the way, it was the, the, just being away and not, the, the kids really not having a kind of idea of where I was or what I was doing uh, just made it really difficult for me. So I gave my month's note. You had to give a month's note to get out of your contract, which is what I did. Yeah. I, I just moved back to New York City and got a desk job. Yeah, because I, I, I saw that in your bio, you know, that you, you go to North Carolina School of Arts, which kind of shows why you're so good in front of the camera and so natural in front of the camera, I guess, because you've sort of been performing for for quite a long time and, and that was one of the burning questions I had and I didn't know whether it was kind of asking you what did you have for breakfast because it shows that <laughs> you you graduated in 2000 and then you get your first desk job five years later but I guess you were sort of uh, traveling around uh, doing auditions for Friends and Cheers and Seinfeld and all the rest of it in between yeah, them. Yeah, right, right. No, no, it was very much uh, much more low budget than that. I did a lot of off-Broadway stuff, off-off-Broadway stuff. I worked at an off-Broadway theater. Mm. Um you know, and then, yeah, I had acting gigs. The last thing I did was the national, the Broadway tour for the full Monty, uh, <laughs> which, was based, which was based on the American movie, which, right. of course, was based on the, on the English movie. Um, so that was the, the last thing I did. But, yeah, the, the best part about uh, having come up here from North Carolina is that that's where I met Corey. Hmm. Uh, when we, you know, and we, Corey Banky and I started Cheesehead TV together, both living here in New York City. When we had gone to school in North Carolina, people would always, I mean, always say, you guys should have your own show. Because all we would do, <laughs> our whole existence, the only thing we ever did was argue about the Packers. That was it. I mean, no, we didn't, we didn't hang out. We didn't go to movies. We would see each other maybe at bars and at, at, at parties or whatever. But when we did, all we did was argue about the Packers. I mean, that was our whole existence. Is he a Wisconsin boy as well? Uh, yeah, he was born in Green Bay. He grew up out in L.A., though. Yeah. Um, 
but he's yeah, he's very much a creature of Wisconsin. There's no doubt about that. I'd say he goes around with the with the sunglasses on, being all prime time. Um, so <laughs> a bit of an LA boy. But so from what you're telling me, right, is that you actor, uh, maybe you know you. you well, you're away from your kids and all that. I have two young kids of two under two, which sounds nice and romantic and that I'm a, I'm, I'm a good dad, but it's actually just mayhem. <laughs> it's mostly about holding yep. babies while they cry in your face. Um, so, <laughs> right. you know, you're an associate with United Media uh, for two years and it's in that period that you start Cheesehead TV. You've got two kids, you've got a desk job, life is busy. You told me at the top of the show, you know, you're doing these, uh, you know, di- well, I don't, I don't know if you told me, I feel like I know you more. I, you know what? I know you way more than you know me, Aaron. So, <laughs> you're, you know, you're putting out daily content and stuff. Cheesehead TV, was that because people kept telling you, lads, just shut up, put it, you know, put it out there on the on the blogosphere? Right. Um, or, I mean, what, what, what was the decision to drive you to do it, especially to take on that commitment? Because we know here at UK Packers that it's an all day thing. And so I guess your Cheesehead TV was the same. I now I'll stop talking in two seconds. But I, <laughs> I, I read that it was just for family and friends. And is that the sexy, romantic way of looking at it, or was that actually uh, what it was? Yeah. And you didn't expect it to get so successful. Well, we certainly never thought it'd be, but it became. There's no doubt about that. When I first started, I had just gotten off the road, and I did indeed start at United Media, which was a uh, newspaper syndicate. And I had a very boring job, you know, dealing with editors on the phone all day. It was just, it was soul crushing, really. Yeah. So I had to, I come up with some kind of creative outlet that, you know, that I, that didn't require me, you know, getting up and breaking into a monologue in the middle of my, you know, work environment. (laughs) So, you know, the internet provided an ability to, to write and put it out there. And the thing, the real, the thing that really started it all was Cliff Crystal used to who now works for the Packers. He writes their website. He used to do a post-game chat for the Journal Sentinel website. And those chats were my favorite Packers content that's ever been created to this day. (laughs) It's my favorite thing that anyone's ever done on the Packers. And I just, they my favorite thing every week. And then he retired and they went away. Yeah. And this happened to be at the same exact time when when I got this job. So I said to myself, completely foolishly, uh, completely full of myself, I said, well, you know, someone needs to take up the mantle. <laughs> and so I started I started I got a blog blogger account and I started a blog. It was called Aaron Nagler's Football Report. And it was it was terrible. It was <laughs> it was all, I I wrote maybe a post a day. Um, these really imperious opinions, not backed by much uh, other than my lifelong love of the game of football. Mm. And, you know, I, I just wrote it. And li- I, I'm not exaggerating when I say family and friends were the only ones who were reading it. I'm pretty sure my dad and Corey and maybe two or three other people are the only ones who ever knew of its existence. <laughs> but because I was doing that, you know, Corey knew that I was in, interested in at least producing content. Yeah. So he suggested we should, you know, he said to me, we should do a podcast. And at that, I had no idea what a podcast was. And he explained, he explained, you know, what it was. And he said, you know, we could do that once a week and uh, you could do, you could keep writing, just write about the Packers and we'll do a Packers site. And he already had the name. He said, we'll call it Cheesehead TV. Hmm. And I was really reticent at first. Like I wasn't, ready for the commitment. I was, this sounds like a lot of work, et cetera. And then my wife is really the one who pushed me to do it. 
her whole reasoning at the time was this will give you a chance to see Corey every week because you moved to the city. We lived in very different parts of the city. City living really divides people. Like if you're not in the neighborhood or if I don't run in your circles, it's, it's a chore to go see people, you know, just unless you like have a car and even then traffic is murder. So it's, it's just hard. So she was like, this will give you an excuse to see Corey every week. And I, I really liked that idea. Corey was a good friend from school. So I thought, sure, yeah, let's do that. So we started it, and it was the summer leading up to the 2007 season. And that was the year, you know, McCarthy had come on board, and Favre, you know, was talking about, well, I don't know what this year is going to be like. And it became the year they went 13-3 and when no one was expecting them to be that good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just, I think it was kind of the combination of the season the Packers had coupled with what we were doing was very new. Um, that it just kind of, I think we just caught people's attention and we were in the right place at the right time. Cause we were, I was blogging multiple times a day, just giving out opinions on everything Packers. And then we would have our podcast every week. And it started as just like this 20 minute thing we did on a lark. And then it grew into, we did an hour and then we were doing an hour and a half. And then we were doing an hour and a half live every week. And people were saying, we got to do, make it two hours. Like it was crazy. (laughs) It was, I mean, it was crazy, but it just kept growing and the word of mouth really took off. And all of a sudden, all the local media people um, who were in Green Bay, all their editors and all the people who were producing content in Green Bay were like, who are these guys? We started getting emails from the Milwaukee Journal Center, from Green Bay Press Gazette. Uh, ESPN Milwaukee, like pitching their guys to come on our show. We were like just two dudes hanging out in Corey's <laughs> apartment, you know? Yeah. But it just, and then that coupled with Twitter starting, we both got on Twitter very early. And uh, yeah, just kind of a right place, right time, coupled with um, a real, I think, what you know, later became very apparent as a, a pretty fervent uh, following and a work ethic that produced constant content. It all just meshed and it all just worked really well. Yeah, because that makes sense from from kind of our perspective because we've been doing this now for five years and it is a grind, um, you know, because I, I think what we see over here is that you, you get a group starting up or some guy will become active and sort of say, right, this is what I'm going to do now. And, you know, we'll get an awful lot of contact about here. I've wrote a blog. Can you promote my blog? And, you know, next thing, 15 days later, it's just completely kaput. It's not there anymore. And it's it's just, it's a constant grind to do stuff like this. And, it just strikes me that you know you've you're obviously highly educated, um, but you found yourself now in journalism and broadcast media. Um, did you ever you know do any kind of and you're a social media specialist as well? We've seen that in some of your previous roles that they've kind of brought you on to look after that kind of stuff and and grow the the social media aspect side of things. Have you ever done any formal training and any of that, or was it all just trial and error as you kind of went along? No, yeah, all self-taught. That was all just. Definitely like trying out new techniques, trying out technologies that worked. It really, another area where we got really lucky synergy wise is Corey's kind of obsession with computers and live streaming. Yeah. He was in he was in front of that years and years and years before everybody else. Uh, the fact that he had, he had not only started working there, he taught himself all of that stuff. Um, but, you know, he had practical experience because he was doing the, New Year's Eve uh, webcast every year. This is before anybody was doing anything live on the internet. And if they were, it was not working. So we, just like I said, we, we were just in a really fortunate spot. We knew, we 
jumped on a lot of the uh, technologies as they became available. And yeah, it was mostly trial and error. It definitely wasn't any kind of training. We were both classically trained actors, so we mm. got to act like we knew what the hell we were doing. But, <laughs> you know, other than that, it, we were really just flying by the seat of our pants. Yeah, you sound a bit Irish. Uh, any Irish background in you? <laughs> sort of fly along by the, by the seat uh, yeah, of Irish? No, just, it is just uh, Russian and German. That, that's my <laughs> that's my background. But, you know, it's just... Supremely just confident. Sure, just, whatever, yeah, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Just... Uh, Go full bore. You're going to make mistakes and learn from them and keep forging ahead. Well, your story is a fascinating one, and it kind of shows this, you know, you kind of evolve as you go. You're doing this kind of stuff on the side, and then you get uh, Rose or Bleacher Report and FanDuel and Sports Illustrated, and now you're um, with the Green Bay Press-Gazette on all of their sort of, you know, uh, sister sites and stuff like that. Now, mm -hmm. you've went through changes, but we've also seen the Packers organization as of late going through a couple of changes here. Nice. Uh, right. Nice well segue, right? Done. <laughs> That's well done right there. Uh, rehearsing that at 6 p.m. today in front of the mirror. <laughs> um, so, like, apart from all of the stuff, like, like we've seen Brian Gutekunst come in, and I've got a couple of questions about that, but from when you've been watching them as a child until now, has the organization really changed all that much? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Oh, complete, completely. It used to be a real mom and pop organization mm. some would argue maybe that was why they were so unsuccessful for so long yeah uh they you know they it really wasn't run like a proper business i mean it was always making money there's no doubt about that they were always still in the bowl um but you know you used to be able to call and get bob harlan on the phone he would answer his own phone calls yeah. uh he, he definitely hung out with the citizenry if you will and i actually think mark murphy's done a pretty a good job of that uh in in recent years but it's just a, a much different feel now. It's very corporate. It's very buttoned up. And I understand changing times. Uh, you know, they are a corporate entity and they are worth billions of dollars. And uh, that's to be understood. You know, they're, they are, uh, they're big business. You know, it's entertainment, but it's business. So it's, it's just night and day comparative to what it used to be, where, you know, you used to see the players all over town, you used to run into them, they would talk to you, et cetera, where now it's, it's all very buttoned up. They still will be, some will be amiable. Some don't want anything to do with uh, fans. And I understand that so guys want their privacy and it's hard, man. If you compare being an NFL player in green Bay to anywhere else in the league, I mean, you're in such a hyper fishbowl existence, you know, you, where everyone knows who you are, what you do, and they're all interested in who you are and what you're doing. Coupled with now the explosion of social media, everyone's got a camera in their pocket and their phone. Um, it's that's a I, you know I don't I don't begrudge that for a second. You know that's that's a hard way to live. But yeah, just the, as far as the organization goes, it, it's just night and day. And it's funny you ask that because I was literally talking to a former Packer employee, and that's as far as I'll take that description uh, to, to today though about. Uh, how different it is now to when Ron Wolf started. And, you know, in some aspects, some parts of the organization feel like a prison comparative to how they used to. It's very big brother. It's very, everybody's being watched all the time. Uh, there's a real controlling feel to it. And I know Mark Murphy has been out front trying to talk about, you know, the, the lack of communication between uh, departments and the silos that have formed, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, there's still very much that corporate sense still very much kind of sits over the Packers franchise. And I think I don't see that going away 
um, now that, like I said, they've become such big business. Yeah, and not to uh, to bring it here, but I suppose it's topical because he's a New York rapper. But Jay Z famously says, uh, "It's not a businessman, I'm a businessman," and I guess that that's the way it is. <laughs> is uh, you know uh, hashtag Jay Z, um, but I, I guess that's the way it is with each player now. They're so protective over their image and they're they're PR'd to within an inch of their life. You know, sometimes we get players on and. Usually we kind of go for the veteran players because they're kind of a bit more free with what they can say. Whereas the minute you get a rookie on, their agents particularly, I don't know if you find this as well, you're probably floating in completely different spheres to us. Uh, whereas it's, you know, if when you when you get them on and it's a rookie, they're, they're very, very nervous almost to say like, how long is it going to be? What are you going to talk about? Because they're trying to protect their image. So, I mean, you're based in New York and, and Andy Topliff wants to know when it comes to, you know, dealing with the Packers and like you said, dealing with ex-employees or current players, is it more difficult for you to be based in New York than being in Green Bay where you can like maybe come across some of these players, talk to other journalists who were there uh, and be in these media meeting rooms? Is there a challenge to that in itself for you? Yeah, very much so. Uh, that's probably the toughest aspect of working this gig. Now, you know, obviously with the Internet, you're able to participate, comment on things. I see all the games, although now they fly me to all the games. Uh, but, you know, I, I watch all the press conferences online. Um I see I consume all the content that I can, but it doesn't that doesn't substitute being there, talking to Pete guys in the locker room and, um, you know, forming relationships. That's a big part of the job. And I have to do a lot of that online. Uh, it's funny because I do try. I do not don't try. I do make a point whenever I am in town and there is open locker room. I go in the locker room. Hmm. and I'm not there. I don't you know, I'm not there to collect quotes. I don't write stories. That's not my gig. But I want to make myself available because I know I, you know, I critique these guys. I'm on Twitter every single day talking about how they're playing. Um, I'm pointing out the good and the bad. I want to make myself available because I know a lot of people who, you know, talk junk about players in the media and then never make themselves available in the locker room yeah. to kind of, you know, follow up and have a conversation about whatever it is they've written or put out there. And I've had a, more than a few guys have come up to me in the locker room to tell me they appreciate that I'm there because I do, I put up video clips. You guys follow me on Twitter, you know, yep. if you know, there's a bad play or something, you know, happens and people are wondering about it. I'll put up a clip of it. And I always tell the guys like, look, if you put it on film, it's out there. I'm going to put it up. I'm going to talk about it. You know, that's, I'm never going to attack a guy personally. I'm never going to talk down to him, but I am going to talk about what's on the film. And I've, like I said, I've had a number of guys come up to me and say, they, they flat out appreciate that and they're glad that I make myself available uh, because like I said, especially in this day and age where everybody's got an inter internet connection, everybody's got the ability to watch football games and then talk about them and give their, their opinions. Well, it's great that you can sit there and you can give your opinion and you can talk junk about a player and maybe even get personal about it. But if you aren't you know, willing or able to go and talk to the player about it, then what is that really worth? I understand as someone who started out on the outside, giving my opinion, not having a relationship with anybody that I'm covering, mm. you know, obviously there are limitations that you've got to work around, but there's a, a manner in which you can do it. And I look back, it's funny. We're talking about cheesehead TV. I look back at a lot of my early stuff and I'm so embarrassed by a good amount of it because I am like, I, like I mentioned earlier, I'm talking in, in the tone of this, you know, this history of watching football without having any real 
kind of investment or sense of what goes on to produce the content I'm commenting on. Yeah. And that to me is the thing that drives me the most crazy about when fans, especially this time of year, when we're talking about um, roster construction and how guys, you know, how the GMs go about putting together their rosters. So many people talk about it like it's their fantasy team or it's their Madden franchise. When what people don't realize about the NFL is how much of it is relationship driven yeah. and how much of it is the history you have with guys. And I'm not talking just GM to player. I'm talking player to player, player to agent, uh, players with franchises. There, there's so much behind the scenes that is is not as difficult to get to that can drive decision making. So it's really, you've just got to be really careful when you're drawing these conclusions based on a you know a very small part of the puzzle as to why that decision was made. So, yeah, that's a long-winded answer to say <laughs> yes, yes, it's it's difficult. I try to do as much as I can to make myself available so that people know, okay, that's the guy in New York, that's the guy on Twitter. Yeah. Um, if they if they have something they want to talk to me about, they can. Yeah, because Rob Domofsky said last week that he he wrote a piece about Devon House and he spoke with Devon and Devon had said to him, yes, I have a thing in my contract that if I play a certain percentage of snaps that I get this bonus, but that's not why I do it. I do it out of pride. I do it because I want to help the team. And like there was all these stories coming out about Devon saying that he kept these Green Bay Packers gear um, and it was always very special to him. So when he made his comeback, it felt like he was coming back home. And one of uh, Devon's, whoever it was, like a, a friend or family member had told him that Domofsky had written a story about him and that what he was painting across was that he was only doing it to get the money, which wasn't true. Devon approached him in the locker room and kind of said, hey, you know, we had that chat and I can't believe you did this. And Domofsky said he, he, he whipped open the phone, showed him the article and Devon said, hey, there's, there's no problem with that. You've talked about the mature players, let's call them, who come up to you and sort of say, I appreciate you, you know, with your analytical mind. Have you ever been approached by a player, and this is not looking for juicy gossip or anything like that, you don't have to name names, who've come up to you and taken exception with what you do? Because uh, I know Neil Hornsby, the founder of PFF, and I, I interviewed him for a website like years and years ago when he was like in his basement, basically, uh, setting up that company. And he said that when he used to go to teams with their stats, even the coaches on that team would turn around and say, that's not true, that player didn't do that. And then he'd have to kind of prove to them on the game tape that they did. Um, so does that kind of disconnect, I guess, with how a player thinks they're playing versus how you see them playing? And if you call them out, I guess it's their livelihood, right? And they do see you as a, as a person from afar, even though you do personally make yourself available. It's more so fans. Do you find the players are very conscious of what's being said about them? And have they approached you and said, like, why are you doing this? You know, no, I've never had, not on the beat. I've had guys talk to me about what I've written at other places when I was at Sports Illustrated. And when I was at Bleacher Report, um, other guys and other NFL teams. On the Packers, I've never had anyone really talk to me about it. I have had guys block me on Twitter, though. Yeah. Um, but, which is fine. You know, I totally get it. Uh, you don't want me part of the seeing your feed, seeing what you put out in the world, because I've maybe been, uh, you know, I've been uh, critical of your play. I get it. That's fine. And like I said, I, I don't get personal. I only talk about what I see on the tape. Um, guys may take it differently. They may, it's really, it's hard to get tone on Twitter. Yeah. So when you see a critical tweet, you may think what a jerk and then block me. And that's fine. I told, that's how Twitter works, right? That is your Twitter account. 
that's how you want to handle it, that's fine. So I get a good sense of who doesn't want to talk to me, judging by who's blocked me on Twitter and who follows me back and who DMs me and whatever. I will say the one kind of Packer player who ever even kind of approached what you're talking about there was uh, HaHa Clinton Dix. Hmm. I can't even remember what it was about, but it was something, it was my first year, so it was two years ago, but it was something about, oh, it was about uh, the number of snaps he had played. Because I had put out there, I think Michael Cohen had written something that he, that, that HaHa had played all but one snap. And so I put that out there on Twitter. And then HaHa DM me and said, no, man, I played every single snap. Mm. And I said, okay, man, I'll, I'll go back and I'll look and I'll correct it if that's right. And it was true. Uh, they, the NFL game book, which comes out after every game, uh, had listed him as missing a snap, but he hadn't. And then they went back, the NFL went back and corrected that. Well, that's what we, that's what we were working off of. So that's what we wrote. But ha, and ha ha was great. And I've been critical of his play. I was critical of his play last year. And he's been nothing but a professional the entire time I've dealt with him. That was the only, but that time he did reach out to correct what was, you know, obviously a factual mistake. And mm. so that was the thing. And I, like I said, I have seen, I've run into him in the locker room after I've ripped on his play and he's been a total pro. So yeah, that is the closest I've come to anybody, you know, talking to me about getting something wrong or taking exception to something I've written or said. But for the most part, it's, it's been very, very professional. And it's it's getting guys uh, like you on, Aaron, that gives us this sort of fantastic insight to, to what goes on behind the scenes. And I would talk to you for several years on the podcast <laughs> about this type of stuff. But just just for the fans that are going to be listening to to hear your feedback on some of the stuff that's going on in the team, maybe if we can just move along, because I'm conscious that you've got kids. I've got kids. Uh -huh. I don't know what's yeah, happening yeah, with my yeah. kids. I don't know what's happening with your <laughs> kids. They're, they're both probably uh, upside down in the toilet bowl as we speak. Right. Um, right. So look, uh, Gudekunst is coming in um, and he said vocally that he wants to be more aggressive. Now, this could be lip service or could not be lip service. What I do see personally from him is is that he says he's going to be in the conversation and then everyone assumes that he's going to be in the conversation. He says he's going to dabble aggressively in free agency. We've seen him make a splash. But Aaron, what I want to know and your perspective on is, is, is there actually a noted change? Um, I, I get there's a noted perspective change, but is there actually a noted philosophical change or working change in the Packers? Because we dabbled last year with Martellus Bennett, Lance Kendricks. Uh, we famously went out and got Julius Peppers. So is bringing in Jimmy Graham and Mo Wilkerson really that strange? Um, and are we in every conversation or is that just something that the Packers want to put out there with this kind of change of the card? It's, that's such a great question. I think it's a bit of both. I think they are in more conversations. I don't, uh, I definitely think that's true. I think they are a little bit more active in the sense that they are searching everything out and are exploring every avenue. But I don't think much has changed philosophically. And I think you're right to cite, you know, look at last year. They signed, what, six free agents? Yeah. Um, and it's funny because Gutekunst today, talking to Michael Cohen, did mention, look, we're not done. Free agency continues on. Uh, there's another wave of free agency where guys get cut. There's more cap cuts to come. Uh, there will be guys cut after the draft. And I don't doubt the Packers will be actively searching, shopping during that period. But for the most part, it's not that different. Mm. It's, 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 it's a, a more readily available GM, a GM who will make himself available after he makes a big move, like cutting Jordy Nelson. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's very different. 
But as far as the philosophical difference, the approach to team building, etc., with the caveat that we are only two plus weeks into the new league year, uh, we have yet to see how the draft plays out, etc. Maybe there's a huge trade to happen. We'll see. But for the most part, yeah, no, it looks pretty similar. It's not that big a departure from what Ted Thompson was doing so far. Again, it's early, but so far, yeah, I'm, I, it's 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 not entirely unfamiliar. And trade specific now, I mean, we look at last year, Martellus Bennett came in. I embarrassingly was on the podcast talking about, because I looked at Jared Cook and I saw that, you know, the stats with him on the field versus off were phenomenal, even though his stats themselves weren't that great. He was able to, you know, pull defenders in. They were so scared with him being such a big body target that it left some of the wide receivers more open and that sort of complementary effect. I expected that to be more prevalent with Martellus Bennett coming in, but What's the difference, Aaron, between Martellus Bennett and Jimmy Graham, apart from the outlandish personality uh, in the locker room and the kind of funny quotes that kind of graded on me after about a week, I have to say, I kind of wasn't interested <laughs> in, you know, whether he's, he was reading Eckhart Tolle or whatever. Um, so is there that much of a difference or can we not really call that move a genius stroke uh, uh, until we actually see him on the field playing? I don't think it's a genius stroke by any stretch, but I do think it's, a nod to how effective that offense is when it has an, an effective tight end at, as a receiving threat. Uh, you, you look at Jared Cook and the way that offense just came alive yeah. when he came back from injury the year they, quote-unquote, ran the table. And it's like you say, it's not about his actual stats. Um, McCarthy referenced that several times during that stretch. It's much more about how he affects a defense and how he makes a defense play that offense. Um, and the big difference between Graham and Bennett, obviously Bennett could block, Graham can't block a lick, but Graham is much more effective as a split out, you know, wide receiver type weapon than Bennett could ever be. Bennett, at least in New England two years ago, showed that he could still work as a receiver in space, uh, could get yards after the contact. He couldn't do any of that last year. And then on top of it, he just forgot how to catch a football. <laughs> so, you know, he, the wheels really came off on him, something quick. And the Packers got to hope that that doesn't happen with Graham. If Graham is even just what we saw last year in Seattle, uh, they should be in a better spot. Uh, obviously, the yard, everyone talks about the yards per catch going down with Graham last year. I mean, it, the lowest of his career. I think a big part of that is Daryl Bevel, how they were using him. Yeah. Clearly, you got the 10 touchdowns in the red, you know, 10 touchdowns to the year. He's a, he's a legit red zone weapon. Um, and, you know, I think a big part of that is they're bringing him in, not only for this aspect that we're talking about as far as how he affects the defense, but to help kind of, you know, offset some of the production loss you're going to get from the exit of Jordan Nelson. But he can run. He can get downfield. Uh, I don't think he's been used effectively uh, the last few years in Seattle, basically his entire time in Seattle. I think people are in for a bit of a surprise when it comes to how effective he's going to be in Green Bay's offense. I don't think he's going to put up huge numbers, hmm. but I think he's going to open up the offense uh, to a, a surprising degree. Yeah, I have to agree. And I don't think Seattle used him properly. That's mostly because Russell Wilson was running for his life behind the O-line. But right, I, well, and that's a, big, that's a big part of it. Obviously. Yeah. And again, Aaron, to be honest, like I expected more because we've seen Drew Brees, um, you know, being a diminutive quarterback and he was going for those big big body targets and 
Russell Wilson, especially against the Packers, had a way of even though he was running from the you know from being in the red zone all the way back down to the halfway line and still making plays. I think that you know Graham would be the type of guy that you go for just for wingspan alone. But you mentioned Jordy Nelson, and when he went, there was a bit of devastation. Um, I was upset because I went out bought a Jordy Nelson jersey, and then that went kaput. Uh, so oh, that's, always, thinking, that's yeah. always a kiss of death. That's yeah. always when you go out and buy a jersey. That that means <laughs> it's only a matter of time uh, until that guy is gone. That, yeah. that is the law of NFL fandom. Yeah, and the minute you're predicting the game, like, oh, we suspect a big game here. There's going to be a touchdown. And you know that thing's an interception. You know that's what's going to happen. So <laughs> Jordy goes out the door. My question to you is, Aaron Rodgers doesn't go down. Hypothetical. He stays in. Jordy Nelson was having kind of a, a real resurgence. Comeback player of the year the year before. Um, catching everything that was basically thrown his way in the red zone. If Aaron Rodgers had a state healthy, would that have been enough to keep Jordy Nelson? Would this have been a more difficult decision? Or was it kind of, and again, this is going to sound harsh, but a blessing, let's say, for the Packers in the skies that they could blame his decline on... Well, he did lose explosiveness. He couldn't get open. Um, I don't think it's any... I put on the podcast on record that I don't think it's any coincidence that Devontae Adams shone, you know, because he was the only one who could get separation. I didn't put that down to Hundley Adams chemistry because I'm kind of thinking, I don't know if you can form that chemistry if you're not having first team snaps. However, the Jordy Nelson debacle, we've seen it go down and him say, you know, that he was kind of upset about what this had to him. But leaving all that emotional stuff aside... Was this sort of a perfect storm for getting rid of that cap space? And and he is a legend. And we've had people say that they should retire his number and all of this. I'm not discounting that. I absolutely love Jordy Nelson. He's one of my absolute all-time favorite Packers up there with Don Hudson. But would he have went, Aaron, do you think, if it wasn't for such a crap year with Aaron going down? No. And that's the thing. I mean, I don't think we're talking about any of none of these changes happen if Aaron doesn't go down. That's what's so crazy. The one thing that I think maybe may have happened is they may have gone ahead with the switch of uh, job responsibility for Ted Thompson. I think that was coming. We heard rumblings about it last year when it was reported that they may, you know, make him a area scout or a head scout or whatever, some figurehead in the scouting department, and then maybe elevate Elliot Wolf or Gutekunst or Highsmith. So we heard those rumblings last year, and then they had one more year, and then obviously Rodgers got hurt, and then everything changed. But if Rodgers doesn't get hurt, they're a Super Bowl contender. Mm-hmm. That's what's crazy. They're four and one before he goes down. Uh, the only two games they've lost in the last calendar year prior to that were like to Atlanta, both times in Atlanta. Um, you know, since basically since starting the run of the table, so to speak. And you know, the defense was the defense. They were opportunistic and they were bad in some spots. They couldn't stop the pass. But as long as they were winning games, none of that mattered. So if Rodgers doesn't go down, I don't think not only is Jordy Nelson still a Packer? Dom Capers is probably still your defensive coordinator. And a lot of, you know, Alex Van Pelt's probably still your quarterback's coach. I, I, you know, and that's a lot of revisionist history on a what if, but man, I, I can't tell you how, uh, how drastic it feels. I mean, to have the amount of change you have in Green Bay right now, and you have a head coach talking about a year one field you know, in the uh, the owners meetings yesterday, um, it is, it's a brand new day, but you've got kind of a lot of the same things in place. So it's, it's a really weird, weird place. Uh, Green Bay finds themselves in this season. And again, I would keep, I, I'm going to keep you on this call for forever. So just tell your family <laughs> to bring you in food like a prisoner. No, it's fine. But it's... I, I tell you what, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. And one other thing, one other thing, 
whoever said they should retire Jordy Nelson's number needs to have their head examined. <laughs> I mean, Jordy Nelson's a great receiver. Yeah, he, mm-hmm. he had a great stretch, but let's let's calm down here, people. Holy cow! Yeah, they said um, to to put him his number up on the on the on the no. Lambo uh, with everybody else but I'll tell you what uh, we, we'll play the numbers game hit me with a number about how many more questions I can throw with you and then we'll have to try get you back for Aaron Nagler part 2 of a 17 part series <laughs> that's fine give, give, me, give me two more two more right so Aaron Rodgers is unquestionably the most important player in the franchise in the NFL that's not even open for debate not unless you're going to jump in now with some fantastic analysis but uh, we see his his contract coming up. Um, but something that kind of struck me was is that whether it's true or not, the Packers organization don't seem to be too concerned with putting his nose out of joint. Now, whether that's just a media headline and just complete fodder or whether it's true. true. So we see, as you mentioned, Alex Van Pelt goes. He comes out in the media on a, on a radio show or a podcast and sort of says that he wasn't consulted about it. And then we see Jordy Nelson going, which makes sense in hindsight. So, like, is there something there where the Packers are trying to show Aaron Rodgers we do not run decisions past you? Do you think that they actually do, but they come out in the media and say that they don't? Or do you think those decisions impact Aaron Rodgers enough to even put his nose at a joint? Or is it just, you know, ordinary course of business, let's say? That's a a good question. I'm going to answer using a lot of stuff I know but can't say. (laughs) Uh, because it, because I learned it on background and all, and some off the record stuff, Mm. but I will, I will say this, the Packers aren't trying to prove a point. They aren't trying to, like you said, get his nose out of joint. They're not trying to prove anything to Aaron Rodgers or anyone else when it comes to making moves like cutting Jordy Nelson or, you know, releasing, letting Alex Van Pelt go, things like they are making decisions that they think are in the best interest of the Packers. And I know that's boring as hell. And I know fans are, are probably don't buy it and are probably sick of hearing it. But it is very much the truth that these things are not done in any way uh, with, uh, you know, testing Aaron Rodgers or poking the bear, so to speak. Now, that said, Aaron Rodgers is famously sensitive. But this is not... This is not new news. I'm not breaking anything here. Um, so they have to know how that there's a possibility of reaction, pushback, what have you. And they are prepared to deal with that because that is their franchise quarterback. And it is the reason most of them are employed. So it, it's, you know, they're, they're, that just comes with the territory at this point. So when Rodgers is at the Super Bowl and he says the thing he says about Alex Van Pelt, there's going to be a reaction internally, but none of that comes out. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's going to be gnashing of teeth, and there's going to be a meeting of the minds, so to speak, both you know within the coaching staff and personnel groups, and then with Aaron Rodgers. That that all gets by the time these guys are back in the building all together in April, like April 16th, whatever it is, when they all come back, it's going to be business as usual. They're going to get around to the business of installing offense, installing defense, getting ready for their uh, you know season. And this is all media noise that doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot. And this has very little bearing on how the 2018 season plays out. But to dismiss it as it's nothing, I think that's a mistake, too. I think yeah. there, there are definite, like I said earlier, the NFL, the average fan does not understand how much of a relationship business the NFL is. And it is, there's no question that 
Rodgers is probably upset, not only about the Van Pelt thing, but certainly about uh, Jordy Nelson, possibly about how it was handled. Um, but at the end of the day, he's paid to throw the football, get the ball in the end zone, and he's going to do that with the guys that are provided to him by the personnel group. And that's as it should be. You know, I Gutekunst, as he said, didn't talk to Rodgers beforehand because it's not his job. It's not his gig to run the you know personnel moves by the quarterback. That's not how it works. And Rodgers knows that. That's the other part of this equation that no one talks about. It's like Rodgers can bitch about, you know, Alex Van Pelt being gone or the release of Jordy Nelson, but he knows it's a business. Mm. He knows this is how it works. He's referenced it countless times, watching John Kuhn walk out the door, watching James Jones go and then come back. You know, this is the business of the NFL. Your friends are going to leave. Mm. That's the way it is. So, and he knows that deep down. He knows that. So, is there drama right now? Are there headlines being made? Yeah, sure. Probably a little bit of tension. That's all part of the gig. But by the time the pads come on and they're 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 getting ready for the season in August, none of this will mean anything. Yeah. And I have my own theories about it as well, but uh, I'll, I'll keep that for the Aaron Rodgers theory podcast <laughs> uh, that I'll do in a couple like, of weeks. Um, so final question, and this is kind of going to be maybe a bit of a clanger and it's it's I, it, it's going to be a bunch of me just blabber and stuff and then sort of saying right Aaron it's over to you so people okay. are gonna people are gonna want to hear about the defense right so we've seen mm. we kind of had our own theory here and we we had a um have a guy here he's we call him our sort of draft specialist this guy just nails it he should actually have been a made gm he wasn't on the list of, of names which is unfortunate but maybe he'll be on the next round andy davies is his name but um, so the defense, we saw something that really just stank. Uh, you know, we saw how Clinton Dix looked like he wasn't interested. Maybe that's unfair. Um, we saw Demarius Randall uh, throw his toys out of the pram and then get sent to the locker room and then decide his day was done and go home. <laughs> then toys we saw... out of the pram is so English. I love that. That's great. <laughs> so, a bit of argy-bargy. So, like and, and then we saw... Um, you know, Randall come out after the season, criticized the coaches or the players, and then we saw Ha Clinton Dix come out and do it. We saw McCarthy tell Randall he needs to grow up. We saw him tell Ha Clinton Dix he was a great leader. So, you know, we've seen this sort of tension between them. We've heard stories about uh, a personnel group basically form a union and tell them that Randall has to go or we'll pick at the Lambo. Uh, you know, and we've seen all this kind of unrest. And then we see Dom Capers go. We see Mike Petton come in. We see stories of, oh, Mike Petton can bring some exotic schemes. He says himself... He doesn't believe in sort of the three four four three scheme. You know, he can do whatever he wants. Um, you know, he has rest and bitch face. He alludes to that. Uh, he sort of, uh, <laughs> he says that, and I'll stop talking now in a second. He says that um, up front is, is, well, this is what the analysts have been saying. Up front is what's important for Mike Petton's D. So we see Mo Wilkerson come in. Kenny Clark is fantastic. Mike Daniels grades off the charts. People say that we've lost next season because we don't have cornerbacks. But then people say, "Oh well, Ke no, this mysterious people, right? That Kevin or that that King, that King's gonna come in, um, and Josh Jones will step up, and Ha Clinton Dix is gonna have a resurgence, and then we've got Tremont Williams." From Aaron Nagler's point of view, what state is the defense in, and is are alarm bells ringing yet, or are we in better shape than we think we are, based on Mike Petton and his schemes and the personnel that we currently have, plus what we're gonna add in the draft and potentially in free agency? Well, I think the draft is obviously key. There's no doubt about that. Um, I think they've made that pretty clear with their inactivity when it comes to the high-end corner market in free agency. Mm. Although I don't know how realistic and an actual, uh, you know, realistic that was given their monetary constraints with the cap. Yeah. But that said, look what Patton did in New York. Now, the caveat here is he had Darrell Revis, mm. which 
makes it a hell of a lot easier to set a guy <laughs> on the number one wide receiver and, and forget it, you know? Yeah. Um, so he obviously doesn't have that, that luxury in Green Bay. But now that said, he was able to generate a pretty decent pass rush while he, he was here in New York with not a lot of big-time talent. He didn't have a big, you know, uh, top-flight, upper-echelon edge rusher. Yeah. You know, he made, a, he made a lot of hay with not a lot to work with outside uh, here in New York. Now, I'm not saying the Packers are going to replicate that. He may even he may not even use that same set of schemes because he may look at what he has on hand in Green Bay. He say, may see Nick Perry. He may think a 4-3 over is a little bit better for him. Yeah. Um, that's something he used a lot in Buffalo just because of the personality he had, had on hand there. But I will say this. You know, obviously the draft is key. You want you got to bring in, you know, a corner most likely to uh, some pass rushing help, etc. But I think the bigger boon slash development for this defense, along with Mike Patton, is going to be the development of the guys from last year's draft class. So we didn't see anything from last year, whether it is Vince Beagle, whether it is Montrevious Adams. Uh, you know, obviously they lost Kevin King a good part of the way through the year and the entire season he was dealing with a bum shoulder. Mm. So, you know, it's a draft and develop program. Well, they've got to, you know, make the develop part of it work to their advantage. So, you know, you got to remember with Adams and Beagle especially, they got no offseason work. Beagle didn't take a snap in the offseason last year. He hurt himself in the very first rookie practice. So he never even put pads on until six weeks into the regular season. That's his NFL rookie year. <laughs> so, and I'm not saying, I'm not sitting here telling you that Vince Beagle is going to come in and light it up and they don't have nothing to worry about. But he's definitely a wild card where you don't know what you've got there. You saw him play like 100 snaps last year where he was running around like a chicken with his head cut off, which is to be expected because he's a rookie thrown into the mix without an offseason. Yeah. And then, and then Adams, clearly, you know, he hurt himself. We never saw him put his pads on. Uh, he had one day with pads. That they had their two days without pads at the start of camp last year. The first day with pads, he hurts his foot, and then he's gone, and you don't see him again. Yeah. Essentially, you know, he played a handful of snaps sort of later in the year, but basically, we don't know what they have there. So it's things like that, coupled with King and his presumed development, they're going to have some pieces to work with, and then you throw in Reggie Gilbert, who really showed continued promise the last two weeks of the season that you you saw in the preseason last year. So there are there are tools there in the toolbox for Petten to use. Now, he still needs a disruptor. He he still needs you know more talent on that side of the ball. No one's discounting that idea or that desire. But I do think there's a chance that they could be slightly better than maybe people are expecting uh, even if they don't land a premier edge rusher or the best corner in the draft. I keep getting messages like they have to trade up for this. They got to, they got to trade up for Derwin James, or they got to try and get up and get uh, Denzel Ward or, you know, whatever. Yeah. I don't think they have to do anything. I think they have to get the most talent they can in this draft, a draft there where they have 12 selections, um, you know, and collect as much talent as they can, because I do think they're a little bit better off than maybe think people are thinking. Now, that said, you know, the, nothing gets proved until the pads come on, the rubber meets the road, and Petten is coaching his group up. But uh, I do think the alarm bells are a bit louder than necessary. Uh, but that said, we'll, we'll see how the draft plays out. We'll see how the remainder of free agency plays out. 
Um, but I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very curious to see how it all gels and comes together. Yeah, so am I. It's going to be super interesting. And Kentrell Bryce folded a guy in half last year, so I think they're still <laughs> trying to uh, put him back as one person, so that might be good. Yeah, no, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> well, Aaron, look, for anybody who uh, is out there and has podcast technology but is actually living under a rock and, and doesn't know where to find you, you have a podcast, you have fantastic videos. Can you give us a rundown of exactly where people can find all of your content? Yeah, sure. At the best place is PackersNews.com. Uh, everything I do is there. Um, I also have a uh, Facebook page, uh, my Aaron Nagler page. You can find I put up everything there as well. Obviously, I'm on Twitter at Aaron Nagler. Uh, but yeah, Packers News, the best place to go, PackersNews.com. You'll find it all there. And Nagler's Never Right is one of my faves. I have to listen to that as well. Is that a labor of love? Or is, I'm surprised you didn't mention it. Oh, thank, um, it's just it's so funny because I do Facebook Live every single day. Mm. Um, when I get to the podcast, I do the podcast every Thursday. I always feel like I'm kind of repeating myself because I'm <laughs> answering questions every single day. Yeah. Uh, and then I get to the podcast. I'm like, oh, that's right. I have to. But I, this is something that I, I'm constantly having to remind myself that not there are plenty of people who only consume your content through one avenue. Yeah. You know, like whether there's someone who just downloads the podcast or only watches the Facebook lives or just follows you on Twitter or only goes to your website that those people are out there. So even if you've said this, you know, thing about, oh, they need to extend Clay Matthews to lower his cap hit. I think I've said that a billion times in the last three <laughs> months. But, you know, for someone who maybe is just downloading my podcast for the first time and only coming to me through the podcast and they wouldn't have heard they will not have heard me say that. So, yeah, I, the podcast is something I, I love doing. It's just I always feel like I'm being redundant because I literally talk into my phone for about a half hour every single day. Uh, on our Facebook page that I feel like I've answered every question. So what could I possibly have to say on the podcast? But then, <laughs> like I say, I go, oh, that's right. There are people who are not consuming my content other places. So yes, Nagler's Never Right. Absolutely check it out. It's available on iTunes. Download it. Listen to it. It's great stuff. Fantastic. Aaron Nagler, it's been an absolute pleasure. Don't get yourself banned off Twitter uh, again, please. That was a very stressful <laughs> time for all of your fans. Uh, you uh, I'll, do what I, I'll do what I can, but no promises. No promises. <laughs> well, look, at least you've hedged your bets and you're on about 17 other platforms and media, so we'll find you somewhere. You'll pop up somewhere. Uh, Aaron Nagler, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk. That's uh, part one of the 700-part uh, series that we're <laughs> hopefully going to have with Aaron. <laughs> Never get to see his kids again. Aaron, thank you so, so much. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me.